Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. I would also have you read aloud the foregoing paragraph. Yes, I would have you commit it to the memory. Even more than this, I would have you write it out and place it where it may serve as a daily reminder of a principle, nay, a law of immutable as a law of gravitation, without which you can never become a power in your chosen life work. There have been times, many of them, when it appeared that if I stood by this principle, it would mean starvation. There have been times when my closest friends and business advisors have strongly urged me to shade my philosophy for the sake of gaining a neat advantage here and there, but somehow I have managed to cling to it, mainly, I suppose, for the reason that I have preferred peace and harmony in my own heart to the material gain that I might have had by forced compromise with my conscience. Strange as it may seem, my deliberations and conclusions on the subject of refusing to strangle my own conscience have seldom been based upon this commonly called honesty. Honesty. That which I have done in a matter of refraining from writing or speaking, anything I did not believe has been solely a question of honor between my conscience and myself. I have tried to express that which my heart dictated because I have aimed to give my words flesh. It might be said that my motive was based more upon self-interest than it was on the desire to be fair with others, although I have never desired to be unfair with others so far as I am able to analyze myself. No man can become a master salesman if he compromises with falsehood. Murder will out and even throw. No one ever catches him red-handed in the expression in expressing that which he does not believe, his words will fail in the accomplishment of their purpose because he cannot give them flesh. If they do not come from his heart, and if they do are not mixed with genuine, unadulterated enthusiasm. I would also have you read aloud the foregoing paragraph, for it embraces a great law that you must understand and apply before you can become a person of influence in any undertaking. In making these requests, for the sake of emphasis, I am not trying to take undue liberties with you. I am giving you full credit for being an adult, a thinker, an intelligent person. Yet, I know how likely you are to skip over these vital laws without being sufficiently impressed by them to make them part of your own work-a-day philosophy. I know your weakness because I know my own. It has required the better part of 25 years of ups and downs, mostly downs, to impress these basic truths upon my mind so that they may influence me, I have tried both them and their opposites. Therefore, I can speak, not as one who merely believes in their soundness, but one who knows. And what do I mean by these truths? So that you cannot possibly misunderstand my meaning, so that these words of warning cannot possibly convey an abstract meaning, I will state by, quote, these truths I mean. You cannot afford to suggest to another person, by word of mouth or by an act of yours, that which you do not believe. 
Surely that is plain enough. And the reason you cannot afford to do so is this. If you compromise with your own conscience, it will not be long before you will have no conscience. For your conscience will fail you to guide you, just as an alarm clock will fail to awaken you if you do not heed it. Surely, this is plain enough also. And how do I happen to be an authority on the vital subject, do you ask? I am an authority because I have experimented with the principle until I know how it works. But, you may ask, how do I know that you are telling the truth? The answer is that you will know only by experimenting for yourself and by observing others who faithfully apply this principle, those who do not apply it. If my evidence needs backing, then consult any man whom you know to be a person who has, quote, tried to get by, quote, without observing this principle, and if he will not, I cannot give you the truth, you can get it, nevertheless, by analyzing the man. There is but one thing in the world that gives a man real enduring power, and that is character. Reputation, bear in mind, is not character. Reputation is that which people are believed to be. Character is that which people are. If you would be a person of great influence, then be a person of real character. Character is the philosopher's lodestone through which all who have it may turn the base metals of their life into pure gold. Without character, you have nothing. You are nothing. You can be nothing, except a pile of flesh and bone and hair worth perhaps $25. Character is something that you cannot beg or steal or buy. You can, you can get it only by building it. And you can build it by your own thoughts and deeds and in no other way. Through the aid of auto-suggestion, any person can build a sound character, no matter what his past has been. As fitting close for the for this lesson, I wish to emphasize the fact that all who have character have enthusiasm and personality sufficient to draw to them others who have character. You will now be instructed as to how you shall proceed in developing enthusiasm in the event that you do not already possess this rare quality. For the instructions will be simple, but you will be unfortunate if you discount their value on that account. First, complete the remaining lessons of this course, because other important instructions which are to be coordinated with this one will be found in subsequent lessons. Second, if you have not already done so, write out your definite chief aim in clear, simple language, and follow this by writing out a plan through which you intend to transform your aim into reality. Third, Read over the description of your definite chief aim each night, just before retiring, and as you read, see yourself in your imagination, in full possession of the object of your aim. Do this with full faith in your ability to transform your definite chief aim into reality. Read aloud, with all the enthusiasm at your command, emphasizing every word. Repeat this reading until you have small, still voice within you that tells you that your purpose will be realized. Sometimes you will feel this effects on this voice from within the first time you read your definite chief name, while at other times you may have to read it a dozen or fifty times before the assurance comes, but do not stop until you feel it. If you prefer to do so, you, you may read your definite chief name as a prayer. The remainder of this lesson is for the person who has not yet learned the power of faith and who knows little or nothing of the principle of autosuggestion. To all those to all who are in this class, I would recommend the reading of the 7th and 8th verses of 7th chapter and the 20th verse of 17th chapter of St. Matthew. 
One of the greatest powers for good upon the face of the earth is faith. To this marvelous power may be traced miracles of the most astounding nature. It offers peace on earth to all who embrace it. Faith involves a principle that is so far-reaching in its effect that no man can say what are its limitations, or if it has limitations. Write into the description of your definite chief aim a statement of the qualities that you intend to develop in yourself and the station in life that you intend to attain, and have faith as you read this description each night that you can transform this purpose into reality. Surely you cannot miss the suggestion contained in this lesson. To become successful, you must be a person of action. Merely to know is not sufficient. It is necessary to know and do. Enthusiasm is the mainspring of the mind, which urges one to put knowledge into action. Billy Sunday is the most successful evangelist, evangelist this country has ever known. For the purpose of study in his technique and checking up on his psychological methods, the author of this course went through three campaigns with Reverend Sunday. His success is based very largely upon one word, enthusiasm. By making effective use of the law of suggestion, Billy Sunday conveys his own spirit of enthusiasm to the minds of his followers, and they become influenced by it. He sells his sermons by the use of exactly the same sort of strategy employed by many master salesmen. Enthusiasm is as essential to a salesman as water is to a duck. All successful sales managers understand the psychology of enthusiasm and make use of it in various ways as practical means of helping their men produce more sales. Practically, all sales organizations have get-together meetings at stated times for the purpose of revitalizing the minds of all the members of the sales force and injecting the spirit of enthusiasm, which can be done in mass through group psychology. Sales meetings might probably be called revival meetings because their purpose is to revive interest and arouse enthusiasm, which will enable the salesman to take up the fight with renewed ambition and energy. During his administration as sales manager of the National Cash Register Company, Hugh Chamblers, who later became famous in the motor car industry, faced a most embarrassing situation, which he threatened to wipe out his position, as well as that of thousands of salesmen under his direction. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. The company was in financial difficulty. This fact had become known to the salesmen in the field, and the effect of it was to cause them to lose their enthusiasm. Sales began to dwindle until finally the conditions became so alarming that a general meeting of the sales organization was called to be held at the company's plant in Dayton, Ohio. Salesmen were called in from all over the country. Mr. Chandler's presided over the meeting. He began by calling on several of his best salesmen to get on their feet and tell what was wrong out in the field that orders had fallen off. One by one, they got up as called, and each had a most terrible tale, grief to unfold. Business conditions were bad. Many Money was scarce. People were holding off buying until after presidential election, etc. As the fifth man began to enumerate the difficulties which had kept him from making his usual quota of sales, Mr. Chamblers jumped up on top of a table and held up his hands for silence. 
and said, Stop. I order this convention to come to a close for 10 minutes while I get my shoe shine. Unquote. Then, turning to a small boy who sat near by, he ordered the boy to bring his shoe shine outfit and shine his shoes right he, where he stood on top of the table. The salesmen in the audience were astounded. Some of them thought that Mr. Charmler's had suddenly lost his mind. They began to whisper among themselves. Meanwhile, the little boy shined first one and then the other shoe, taking plenty of time and doing a first-class job. After the job was finished, Mr. Chandler's handed the boy a dime, then went ahead with his speech. Quote, I want each of you, he said, to take a good look at this little boy. He has the concession for shoe shining throughout our plant and offices. His predecessor was a boy considerably older than himself, and despite the fact that the company su subsidized him with a salary of $5 a week, he could not make a living in this plant where thousands of people of people are employed. This little boy not only makes a good living without any subsidy from the company, but he is actually saving money out of his earnings each week, working under the same conditions in the same plant for the same people. Now, I wish to ask you a question. Whose fault was it that the boy did not get more business? Was it his fault or the fault of his buyers? And a mighty roar of the crowd answered, come back. It was the boy's fault, of course. Just so, replied Chandler's. And now I want to tell you this, that you are selling cash registers in the same territory to the same people with exactly the same business conditions that existed a year ago, yet you are not producing the business that you were then. Then, now, whose fault is that? Is it yours or the buyer's? And again, the answer came back with a roar. It's our fault, of course. I'm glad that you're frank to acknowledge your faults, Chandler's continued. And now I wish to tell you what your trouble is. You have heard rumors about the company being in financial trouble, and that was killing off your enthusiasm, so that you are not making the effort that you formerly made. If you will go back into your territories with a definite promise to send in five orders each during the next 30 days, this company will no longer be in financial difficulty, for that additional business will see us clear. Will you do it? They said they would, and they did. That incident has gone down in history of the National Catcher to Register Company under the name of Hugh Clamber's Million Dollar Shine, for it is said that this turned the tide in the company's affairs and was worth millions of dollars. Enthusiasm knows no defeat. The sales manager who knows how to send out an army of enthusiastic salespeople may set his own price on his services. And what is more important than this, he can increase the earning capacity of every person under his direction. Thus, his enthusiasm benefits not only himself, but per perhaps hundreds of others. Enthusiasm is never a matter of chance. There are certain stimuli which produce enthusiasm. The most important of these being as follows. 1. Occupation in the work which one loves best. 2. Environment where one comes in contact with others who are enthusiastic and optimistic. 3. Financial success. 4. Complete mastery and application in one's daily work of the 15 laws of success. 5. Good health. 6. Knowledge that one has served others in some helpful manner. 7. Good clothes appropriate to the needs of one's occupation. All these seven sources of stimuli are self-explanatory, with the exception of the last. The psychology of clothes is understood by very few people, 
and for this reason it will be explained here in detail, clothes constitute the most important part of the embellishment which every person must have in order to feel self-reliant, hopeful, and enthusiastic. The Psychology of Good Clothes When the good news came from the theater of the war on November 11, 1918, my worldly possessions amounted to but little more than they did the day I came into the world. The war had destroyed my business and made it necessary for me to make a new start. My wardrobe consisted of three well-worn business suits and two uniforms which I no longer needed. Knowing all too well that the world forms its first and most lasting impressions of a man by the clothes he wears, I lost no time in visiting my tailor. Happily, my tailor had known me for many years. Therefore, he did not judge me entirely by my clothes I wore. If he had, I would have been sunk. With less than a dollar and change in my pocket, I picked out the cloth for three of the most expensive suits I have ever owned and ordered that they be made up for me at once. The three suits came to $375. I shall never forget the remark made by the tailor as he took my measure, glancing first at the three bolts of expensive cloth which I had selected, and then at me he inquired, Dollar a year, man, huh? No, said I. If I had been fortunate enough to get on the dollar-a-year payroll, I might now have enough money to pay for these suits. The tailor looked at me with surprise. I don't think he got the joke. One of the suits was a beautiful dark gray, one a dark blue, another one a light blue with a pinstripe. Fortunately, I was in good standing with my tailor. Therefore, he did not ask when I was going to pay for those expensive suits. I knew that I could and would pay for them in due time, but... Could I have convinced him of that? This was the thought which was running through my mind. With hope against hope, that question would not be brought up. I then visited my haberdasher, from whom I purchased three less expensive suits and complete and a complete supply of best shirts, collars, ties, hosiery, and underwear that he carried. My bill at the haberdasher's amounted to a little over $300. With an air of prosperity, prosperity, I nonchalantly signed the charge ticket and tossed it back to the salesman with instructions to deliver my purchase the following morning. The feeling of renewed self-reliance and success had begun to come over me even before I had attired myself in the newly purchased outfit. I was out of the war and $675 in debt, all in less than 24 hours. The following day, the first of the three suits ordered from the haberdasher was delivered. I put it on at once, stuffed a new silk handkerchief in the outside pocket of the coat, shoved the $50 I had borrowed on my ring down into my pants pocket, and walked down Michigan Boulevard in Chicago, feeling as rich as Rockefeller. Every article of clothing I wore, from my underwear out, was the very best. That it was not paid for was nobody's business except mine, and my tailors, and my haberdashers. Every morning I dressed myself in an entirely new outfit and walked down the same street at precisely the same hour. That hour, quote, happened to be the time when a certain wealthy publisher usually walked out the same street on his way to lunch. I made it my business to speak to him each day, and occasionally I would stop for a minute to chat with him. After this daily meeting had been go going on for, for about a week, I met this publisher one day, but decided I would see if he would let me get by without speaking. Watching him from under my eyelashes, I looked straight ahead and started to pass him when he stopped and motioned me to, over to the edge of the sidewalk. 
placed his hand on my shoulder, looked at me from over head to foot, and said, You look damn prosperous for a man who has just laid aside a uniform. Who makes your clothes? Well, I said, Wilkie and Celery made this particular suit. He then wanted to know what sort of business I was engaged in. That, quote, airy atmosphere of prosperity, which I had been wearing along with a new and different suit every day, I had got the better of his curiosity. I had hoped it would. Flipping the ashes from my Havana Perfecto, I said, Oh, I'm preparing to copy I'm preparing to copy for a new magazine that I'm going to publish. A new magazine, huh? he inquired. And what are you going to call it? It's it is to be named Hill's Golden Rule. Don't forget, said the publisher's friend, that I am in the business of printing and distributing magazines. Perhaps I can serve you also. That was the moment for which I had been waiting. I had that very moment. Almost the very spot on the ground of which he, we stood in mind when I was purchasing those new suits. But it is necessary to remind you that the conversation never would have taken place had this publisher observed me walking down the street from day to day with, with a whipped dog look on my face and an unpressed suit on my back and a look of poverty in my eyes. An appearance of prosperity attracts attention always, with no exception whatsoever. Moreover, a look of prosperity attracts favorable attention because one of the dominating desires in every human heart is to be prosperous. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.